This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Very excited for this edition of Sox Degrees to uh, welcome Paul Lucas uh, into the fray. Uh, as I read on his uh, Twitter bio, uh, and make sure you go to uniwatch.com, uh, obsessive study of athletics aesthetics, care more about what players wear than what teams sell. Uh, there's probably no better expert on uh, sports uniforms and logos on the planet than Paul. And as someone who cares very deeply about vertical arching, uh, we are kindred spirits. We will get into vertical arching here a little bit later. But, Paul, let's start this way. What was the first logo or uniform that you saw that made you think, this is something that I want to delve more deeply into? I think, actually, it may have been my first Little League uniform. Uh, I, I was eight years old, and they, they issued that uniform, and I felt so official uh, in a way that I had never felt before uh, as a kid. And I especially remember, uh, this was in the 1970s, I grew up in the 70s, uh, and ballplayers still wore stirrups, uh, you know, on their lower legs. And every every sport has a jersey, every sport has pants or shorts, but only baseball had stirrups. And that felt like the most baseball thing about the uniform. And so the fact that I had these stirrup socks and I pulled them up and made sure the openings were just at just the right height and that they matched on my left and right leg, all that, um, it, it just felt like the most official baseball thing possible for an eight-year-old kid. And uh, I just got sucked right into it. I guess the, that button was waiting to be pushed, you know, in my brain, if I was already responding to that first uniform that way. But uh, that's what really sort of got me going on uniforms. And then from then on, I was always noticing how athletes in all sports, but especially in baseball, uh, how they wore their uniforms, uh, the differences in sleeve lengths or pant cuff lengths or anything like that. And yeah, I got into color combinations and logos and all that good stuff. And uh, the result of that childhood geekitude, I guess you could say, is that uh, uh, I've been able, I've been lucky enough to be able to write about uniforms professionally for over 20 years now. So we're going to nerd out on uniforms and logos. I'm just warning people. But I, th I do think it'll be interesting even for those who care maybe tangentially about this stuff. Um, when I was a kid, I used to draw uh, logos. Uh, and I, for some reason, NHL logos were a big thing for me. The old North Stars logo, the Oilers, the Flames. I used to just try to you know, draw. I wish my, my mom had saved all that stuff so we could show it on the podcast here on the video screen. But um, I, I was doing all of that too. I was that kid who was, <laughs> who was doodling those logos in the margins of my notebook in school instead of paying attention to the teacher and, uh, and always being a little unsatisfied that it, I couldn't get it quite right. Like it didn't yeah. look 
exactly, you know, like whether it was the, like you said, the North stars logo or the, I remember the flyers logo used to, the Philadelphia flyers used to give me trouble. I couldn't yep. get the, couldn't get it to look just right, but I kept trying. Yeah. And I don't know why that was so satisfying, but I it just kept at it. So where I go, um, and I, and I don't know how you, you fight this, or maybe you lean into it. I <laughs> lean into it as much as I can, and then I get called on it. But I tend to revert to 10 to 14-year-old Len. And if I see the St. Louis Blues wear their lighter blue jerseys that remind me of 1982, I go, that's what they should be wearing. Or if I see the Blue Jays with their, you know, again, their, their, their retro... Uh, pale blue uniforms that they wear at home, which I hate. I wish they would just wear them on the road. I love those. Uh, I like simpler versus, you know, the kind of the 90s feel. Do you find that you, your sensibilities tend to lean toward when you were a kid, as you just talked about, and, and those color combinations and those versions of uniforms tend to be your favorite? Yeah, I actually, I have a very similar uh sort of mental and emotional default in terms of uh, which uniforms I think are, are the right ones or the ones that a team is quote unquote supposed to wear. Uh, and I think just as, I think it's sort of a cliche, they say that the music you like in college is the music you'll keep liking or think is is the best music for the rest of your life. Uh, and I do think often that the uniforms you like most, uh, as you say, right around that 10 to 14 year old sweet spot um, are the ones uh, that that you think are the best. But I would add, uh, in a lot of cases, I think the teams seem to agree with us because so many teams have gone back, you know, after sort of going astray uh, or wandering away from those those core looks from, from the 70s and 80s, they have gone back. Um, and like in the NFL, for example, uh, just in the last year, right, the Cleveland Browns and the Tampa Bay Bucks both came out with new uniforms that were actually old uniforms. They, they had gone way far away from their classic looks and then basically kind of hit control Z and said, never mind. <laughs> we're going like they, when they unveiled their new uniforms, it, it wasn't something new. They were just turning back the clock, not as a throwback, not like as a one-off throwback, but saying, actually, we're just going back to our classic look. And the Blue Jays, who you mentioned, you know, they had that period where they were wearing like charcoal as their main color to go with the blue. And then they uh, they went back to uh, sort of an updated version of their original look with the inline font. Right. You know, the, like what they have now is not exactly what they had in the 70s and 80s, but very similar, very, very similar. And, and I think a big reason for that is um, when we were growing up and, you know, basically up until about the mid 90s or so, the only real question a team had about its uniform and what, what its uniform should be was, how does this look on the field? And now that is about the third or fourth question that gets asked. The first question that gets asked is, is there a certain demographic willing to spend money to buy this jersey at retail or this cap at retail? And I think when the aesthetic question is the first question, you know, how does this look on the field? You tend to get better design that that's what, you know, that drives good design. And when the retail merchandise considerations are driving your decision-making, you tend to get designs that are trendy or of the moment, but are not necessarily built to last uh, and, and may appeal to a certain demographic group the, that has a certain kind of disposable income and, and is willing to spend on lifestyle accessories, 
but will not necessarily have a broader appeal to other segments of your fan base. And I think that's the real difference between the uniform scene that we grew up with and today's uniform scene. So my my first question for you is just so people get a feel for what you like, and I would actually ask both of you, Len and Paul, this, your top three uniforms of all time <laughs> are what? And I know, I know they're going to be, well, having worked with Bill Walton and having him tell me that don't put me in a binary world. Like I, I know that the answer might be there are more than three, but what's in the pantheon here? Len, do you want to go first? No, but I will. Uh, <laughs> you know, in this, again, um, this kind of gives away the game a little bit, I suppose. And I will try to do three different sports just to, to make it fun. Uh, I will go with the Yankees. I'll go with the uh, Boston Celtics uh, road green. And I will go with the now home Detroit Red Wings. And what you'll notice about all three of those choices <laughs> is it's one main color and that's it. It's very simple. It's very streamlined. And you'll also notice the White Sox uniforms are similar to the Yankees. Therefore, uh, I love the Sox uniforms as well. So those are my three. Uh, I would start number one uh, with the St. Louis Cardinals, baseball Cardinals, um, I mean, they haven't changed much over the years, but I would specify like mid to late 60s if possible. Uh, I love the birds on the bat. I think uh, that is every bit as visually iconic as the Yankees pinstripes, and it has a nice playful feel to it. Uh, and in that 60s period, uh, that to me is the sweet spot of when ballplayers uh, were wearing their pants, like cuffing their pants and wearing their stirrups at exactly the right height. It's sort of platonic ideal. That's at, it's predates me as a fan. It's not what I grew up with, so it's not my personal nostalgia, but it, it's just, it to me, it, it's exactly, when I think of baseball, to me, that's how it should look. Even the fabrics in those days, they draped just right. Uh, and even like you see the old photos, the Kodachrome film of those days get really saturated colors. And it's just uh, it's like a, a feast for the eyes. But I would take today's St. Louis Cardinals pretty well, too. It's not that different a uniform. Uh, and I, again, I, I do love the birds on the bat. Um, number two, I'd probably go with the Green Bay Packers uh, in the NFL. I love the color combination of green and yellow. Those are also the colors of UniWatch, my website. Uh, and so... Uh, ever since I was a kid, in fact, my favorite color has been green. Uh, and so I, I wish more teams throughout the sports world would wear green. It's an underused, underappreciated color. Um, I like the A, the Oakland A's too, for that same color scheme. But I especially like the Packers. I, I just, I, to me, it's like this autumnal, deep, rich color palette that's perfect for an autumn sport like football. Uh, and then I would probably go with like almost any of the original six NHL teams to me get it right. Uh, depending on which day you ask me, today I'm going to say the New York Rangers, what, what is now considered their road uniform, the white one. I really like the way the blue and the red pop on that white jersey. I wish the NHL would go back to wearing white at home. I, I like most NHL teams' white uniforms better than their colored uniforms. And definitely that's the case for the Rangers for me. I, I like their white uniform better than the blue one. Uh, and they did wear white at home, the NHL, from about 1970 until 2003, I believe it was. Uh, and then they flip-flopped it. I'm hoping they'll flip-flop it again at some point. And I would add that um, part of the reason I, I I chose the teams I did, and I'd be curious, Paul, to get your thoughts, is I, I'm a big believer in owning a color 
I think the A's own green in terms of baseball. I think the Celtics own green in terms of the NBA. I think the, the Red Wings own red. Uh, when, when they all come out on the ice and it's just red from, you know, top of their head to basically the top of their skates, I think there's <laughs> something really cool about that. Um, are you a believer in that? And that's why the Cleveland Browns and the San Diego Padres going back to Brown, uh, that that really works? Uh, there's definitely something to be said for that. I think it can get a little out of hand when you have teams nowadays that will just sort of invent a color, you know, to own it um, at, you know, a, a particular shade of teal or when the Buccaneers came up with pewter, which I guess it now you could say they've aged into it. But in the beginning, it felt kind of gimmicky, right? Like in 97, when the Buccaneers came out with the pewter uh, and you know, my favorite team, the team I root for is, is the New York Mets and their their color is royal, which is not a unique color, obviously, but their their combination of royal and orange is unique, at least in Major League Baseball. There's no other team that has it. And so uh, I, I don't think it has to necessarily be one color, but I think a good color combo. Yeah, you want to own it. And that's a, I would say that's a problem in Major League Baseball right now. You have so many teams that wear some combination of blue and red. Uh, and that it's and it's really through all sports, not just uh, MLB. And you have teams like uh, Cleveland now. The guard, you know, now that they're changing from Indians to Guardians, I was wondering actually, Len, if they were going to change their colors to create something they that they could own, like you say, and you know, uh, a unique color, a unique shade of a color. Uh, I understand why they stuck with. Uh, their existing color palette so as not to be too disruptive to their fans. They wanted to maintain some sense of continuity. Uh, but it was an opportunity if they had chosen it uh, to go that route to really stake out some new chromatic territory. And, and you know, the Indians actually in their history have never really been able to decide if they're a red team with blue trim or a blue team with red trim. And the Texas Rangers are basically in the same boat. Uh, they they kind of go back like if you were to ask the average fan like which is their main color and which is the secondary color uh, it almost depends on which day of the week you're you're watching them uh jason i'm sorry i hate to keep jumping in but you know me i'm crazy um this is your purview. No, I know, I, I know, I know. I mean, I do use I Pantone colors on my basketball and football boards, so, so I can I. get in there, but go, so please. I. No, uh, I wanted to, because you brought up red, Paul, I want to ask you about, I guess, what I would say is maroon or that, uh, that almost brownish red. I think mm -hmm. that has been underutilized. Uh, obviously, the Redskins have worn that type of color at times. Mm -hmm. Um, but really, in the four major sports, uh, maybe the Cavaliers at times Cavs, have worn. Yeah, yeah. But that's about it. Uh, why is it? Is that just not a very uh, is that just not a very pleasing hue of red for whatever reason? I don't know. It's pleasing to me. I, I agree that maroon or burgundy or wine or whatever you want to call it, uh, yeah, is underutilized, and I think uh, could definitely have a larger role uh, in the, in the universe, as we like to call it, <laughs> in the world of uniforms. So yeah, I, I'm with you there. Um, and maybe you know, there was a time when the White Sox. I mean, it's interesting. The, the White Sox now are this bastion of of visual stability. Their uniforms haven't changed in. Uh, I forget the year, like, but it's it's been over. It's been 20 years, right? 20 years. 30. 30, 30 yeah. Okay. And so that is such a change from the like the 30 years immediately preceding that, where they went through all sorts of permutations. At one point, red was was their color, right? In the early 70s, like the like that 72, 73 Wilbur Wood era, uh, where they had the red cap and the red script on the powder blue road uniform. 
And they, in their history, I don't think any team, major league team, has changed colors uh, as often as the White Sox did from like the 40s through the 70s. It was it was just a constant merry-go-round. It was, I mean, nowadays you would say, oh, that's bad branding. It's there's no consistency, but it was, uh, you know, it was a different era and uh, it was just sort of a, a carousel of different designs. And of course, the Bill Veck era with the, yeah, there, so we can see Dick Allen in the, the red pinstripes. Uh, and and then you had, um, as I was saying, Bill Veck with the, the leisure suits and the, the shorts and, and all the rest that you guys probably talked about so many times. But uh, it's interesting that that team of all teams has now become one of the most visually stable franchises. Uh, and, and they really, you know, when you talked about owning a color, you could almost argue that the White Sox own black uh, in Major League Baseball. So many baseball teams use black and have, you know, so, oh, let's have a, a black alternate jersey. It's almost a cliche, right? Like we call it, it black for black sake, BFBS, <laughs> sometimes in the over on UniWatch, when a team who, who doesn't have black in their color scheme introduces a black cap or a black jersey just for the sake of doing it. Uh, but the White Sox, it actually is their their main team color. And, and they really wear that black jersey more often than the road grays these days, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, big time. I I wonder what it's going to take to get a team to do something like shorts again. You know, I, I feel like they I, I'm surprised they haven't tried the shorts just for a, a one off throwback or or even for like pregame warm ups or something, because uh, it's such a famous episode in baseball history. They were only worn for three games um, and apparently nobody you know skinned their knee too badly sliding into third base or whatever whatever you'd expect uh and it's it seems like uh the kind of thing that would be just so much fun to have it back for a game or two um or or for the team portrait or for something it's and it's part of the, the team's heritage right it's part of the white Sox heritage i'd love to see lance lynn all-star possible Cy Young candidate Lance Lynn in the the jersey and shorts there. I think it'd be amazing. And I think fans would just erupt. They'd eat it up. But then you have the problem of, I mean, you know, the the uniforms from that era, even just the jerseys were were not a hit, at least with Chris Sale, right? And, Correct. <laughs> so I don't know how today how the modern player would respond to being told that he has to wear shorts for a game. So I kind of have this thing where I I love nostalgia and I know you are like, that's wheelhouse for you. I grew up a little bit later and like I had a Damon Stoudemire Raptors Jersey, which had like his name on the back and they had like the Stegosaurus print on the name and it's mm -hmm. purple and red and garish. And there's a basketball playing dinosaur on the front. I want your top three, maybe not worst uniforms, but like, whoa, uniforms. Like, what have you done to this thing we love? I want to know your both of your top three in that department because I fear they might be some uniforms I like for, for the sake of being weird. Go uh, ahead, Paul. You know, it, it's interesting. The, at that time, when that, when that uniform came out, and it was part of a whole series of NBA uniforms, uh, that really pushed the envelope or broke the mold or whatever cliche you want to invoke. And that was because uh, they were starting to use uh, a production process called sublimation, where they could print a design on any part of the jersey, like all over the jersey, instead of just sewing graphics on certain areas. But basically the entire jersey was like a canvas. Uh, and so you got wacky designs like what's called the Barney 
design for the Raptors because it has the dinosaur on the purple uh, jersey or the Grizzly, the Vancouver Grizzlies design from that same period. Uh, the 76ers design with like the shooting stars going uh, down the side. Uh, so they were they were they were really trying to change the conception of what a basketball uniform could be. And in the NHL, the same thing was happening with uh, the L.A. Kings, what's called the Burger King design, uh, which has this really weird looking king with stripes coming off him. And uh, Wayne Gretzky actually wore that for one game with the Kings uh, and, <laughs> and the uh the Mighty Ducks, uh, what's now known as the Wild Wing design, which showed their cartoon mascot duck character breaking through uh, from underneath the ice uh, at, in this sort of like a very cartoony looking. And all of these were possible because of this process of sublimation. And all of them resulted in uniforms that were pretty well reviled at the time. Um, and that I think we can now like look back on and say, maybe that wasn't the best design, maybe that was even a mistake, but it's kind of fun to live in a world where that kind of mistake can be made. And we can we can laugh about it now. And several of those, like the Wild Wing design for uh, um, for the, the uh, for the Mighty Ducks, have been brought back. Like they brought that back as part of their reverse retro series. And the, the NHL had this whole line of, of um, sort of differently colored throwback uniforms last season and the the ducks they brought back the wild wing design and that was great that's what something like reverse retro should be for uh and the raptors have kind of reclaimed uh the barney design as well and and i think that it's the kind of thing that uh sometimes it you have to let it age a little bit before <laughs> and, and be able to laugh yeah. at it I, I feel the same way actually about uh major league baseball's turn ahead the clock uh, program from 1999, which I, I remember I had just started UniWatch. I had just started writing about uniforms and they started the, the, the futuristic uh, uh, uniform program, and which was supposed to represent our current year. Incidentally, those uniforms were supposed to represent 2021. So with the future is now we have arrived in the future. And then those uniforms were the worst. And, you know, as a as a guy who was writing, who just started writing about uniform, man, I had I had a lot of a lot of material there. Uh, and I, I wrote a lot of negative things about it. But 22 years later, you know, it was actually a fun lark. Uh, my favorite team, uh, the Mets, took it the farthest. They actually called themselves the Mercury Mets, making their only Earth appearance. Uh, most of the other teams uh, just sort of they made sort of enlarged, oversized versions of their logos and plastered them on the jerseys. But the Mets went further. They created a new identity for themselves. As a Mets fan, I was mortified. I thought it was, <laughs> but looking back, I can see that the Mets were actually the only team that that really handled that promotion the way it should have been handled. Like if you're going to be silly, go all the way, like buy in fully, uh, and and that's what the Mets did. And was it was it a silly program? Was it maybe a mistake and and not really successful from a, a visual perspective? Yeah, but it's like it's a fun mistake to have made, and it's part of baseball history now. Uh, and I, I always enjoy uh, talking about it and thinking about it. And I think that fits in all these things, uh, especially from the '90s. I think that was a period where you saw a lot of that experimentation uh, and that sense of what you said about oh, it's sort of weird and what have they done? But it's, uh, the short, I would say the shorts fit in there too. You know, the, yep. um, and I'm sure people felt that way in the seventies when the Astros came out with their rainbow jerseys, right? And the tequila sunrise, literally nothing like that had ever appeared on a baseball field before. And nowadays that is almost a template, that striped jersey. Like you see college and high school teams wearing 
different colored versions of that. Like instead of all the different orange, different shades of orange stripes, you'll have different shades of blue or different shades of green or different shades of purple or whatever it is. And, and that is sort of a standard design that uniform companies offer in their catalogs now to high school teams, American Legion teams. And so uh, people laughed about it at the time, but it's kind of become iconic. So I, ha I have a few, um, and I'll, I'll lump a couple together. Uh, the Islanders and Pistons both completely scrapped uh, their iconic looks. Um, maybe around the same time, I think the Islanders may have done it a little earlier. Paul, you're the expert here. Um, and they've both kind of gone back to their iconic looks. You didn't um, like the Gordons Fishermen? No, not not at all. I don't think any Islanders fan did. I think that's why they they eventually scrapped it. And then the Pistons added like a horse logo, and then they changed the colors. And again, it just I I I I didn't understand it. And Paul, tell me why they did that. Was again, there any appetite for for a Pistons fan to to not see the blue and red of their their classic look when they won all those NBA titles? Again, this was in that same period when this process of sublimation was kind of rewriting the book. Uh, and in the NBA in particular, they had a creative director, a guy named Tom O'Grady, who basically took it as his mission to kind of push things a little and, and see not what he could get away with, but to reimagine what a, an NBA basketball uniform could be. And along the way, he maybe pushed a little too far in some instances. Uh, I, I think in his mind, he never really got to push far enough. He would have gone even farther. Uh, but uh, it, it wasn't happening by accident. The idea was uh, to really not just stick with the same old thing, to do something that got attention uh, and to, uh, to move merchandise in what was now a new merchandise market at that time. You know, the selling of jerseys was starting to be a big thing. Uh, but as you said, the team scrapped that. And this is what I was talking about when I said, you know, the it isn't just nostalgia when we say, oh, this is the classic Islanders look. This is the classic Pistons look or whatever. It's not just because we grew up seeing that. The teams and their fan bases seem to agree that, you know, if they go off center a little bit, the, the teams with their looks, usually the pendulum comes back toward the center uh, and that the, the, the designs from that period when the the point of the design was just to look good on the field or on the court, not to have some complicated multi-bullet pointed marketing plan or to move merchandise or to have a press conference where you talk about all the different kinds of storytelling that are embedded in the design and all, all these things that are now kind of part and parcel of the uniform world. I think people often come back and whether they realize it or not, think that it was better the old way when the only point was, does it look good on the court or the ice or the field? I want to give two uh, NHL franchises credit because I don't want to make this whole hour about criticizing <laughs> teams that should change their logos, but uh, the Flames and the Avalanche. Uh, in the case of the Calgary Flames, uh, for a long period, maybe almost 20 years, maybe more, uh, they were essentially red with black, and they would have yellow accents. Uh, they eventually scrapped the black, and now it's it's red and, and yellow, which is, again, hearkening back to their heyday back in the 1980s. And I think that color scheme is, again, they own it, and it looks a lot better. And, and the Avalanche, uh, Paul, they never quite, to me, the combo never quite fit because it was that deep red that we talked about earlier. It was a very vibrant blue. They had even maybe some silver or gray in there. And then they had black helmets and black pants. And I never could figure out how that fit the scheme. Well, lo and behold, about three months ago, I turn on a game and I go, wait a minute, 
Their helmets are blue. Their pants are blue. There's no black in the uniform, and it looks great. So I give the Avs a lot of credit for doing that, too. Yeah, they did that last season. They changed all the black helmets back to blue. Um, and, you know, the Flames are another great example of what we're talking about, where they they tried something different. And and ultimately, it's, it's like they just came around full circle back to where they started. And it's so interesting how many times that happens with these teams. And I, I don't think it's just nostalgia. I, I think a lot of times they kind of got it right the first time or they got it right at some point that we, we can all identify. And then even though it wasn't broke, they decided to fix it and tinker with it. And then they, you know, they sort of go astray. But it, it is sort of heartening to see how often teams come back. Uh, to where they were. And I'll, I'll bring up the Mets again, my favorite team. There was that period from uh, the late 90s through the early 2010s when they had black in all sorts, basically every aspect of their visual program, not just the, the, not just a black jersey and a black cap, but their script, even on their basic white pinstripe jersey, had a black drop shadow, which just looked it was looked too clunky. Instead of wearing blue undersleeves under the jersey, they were wearing black undersleeves. You know, everything that had been blue pretty much had been changed to black or accented with black. And then they got rid of it all. And they said, you know what? We're, our DNA is blue and orange. Uh, and, and that's when they got rid of the black. Uh, actually, to, I'm not sure what date this podcast will be airing, but to, we're recording here on, on Friday, the 29th of July. And the Mets are bringing back uh, the... Uh, um, I'm sorry, the 30th, I said the 29th. Uh, the Mets are bringing back the black uh, jerseys tonight. Uh, for the first time in years, they're going to wear black jerseys. And they've decided to do that for uh, every Friday home game for the rest of this season. And I get that as a Mets fan. Like if you grew up watching Mike Piazza and that and Al Leiter and that version of the Mets, uh, and they went to the World Series in 2000, like those were your heroes and they were wearing black. And so that's that's part of the team's history now and part of the heritage. And sure, that's fine to bring it back once in a while and to, to salute that look. Uh, but I'm so glad it's not an everyday thing anymore. I just read through. It's funny you bring that up. I just read through Howie Rose's mentions after he tweeted earlier today. Today is a dark day in Mets history. <laughs> Literally. The, the pun on dark day. And there are people just blasting him and people saying that they love it. I love the vitriol and the like the visceral feelings that uniforms create in all of us. I love that. Yeah, it's it's really remarkable how many people uh, maybe it's not so remarkable. You know, the famous Jerry Seinfeld line, we're all rooting for laundry. Right. And, and <laughs> like it doesn't matter who the players are. Uh, what matters is what they're wearing. You know, I, I'm a Mets fan and I hate the Yankees. But if the entire Mets team was traded tonight, even up, you know, 26 guys for 26 guys for the entire Yankees team, who would I root for tomorrow? And to me, it's a no brainer. I would root for the, the 26 guys who are now wearing Mets uniforms, even though I hated them yesterday, which makes <laughs> no sense. Right. And and that is the passion and the power of a uniform. And and yeah, people get really, really into it. And uh, yeah, it is fun to see. So I had a conversation a few years ago with Rob Nyer, uh, one of my good friends and a great baseball writer. And uh, I brought up this topic that he had never contemplated before. And I don't know if he ever wrote about it, but he told me he was going to. And, and Benetti, I want you to answer this along with Paul as well. When you have historical moments, whether it's a no-hitter, a four-homer game, something significant that happens, it, it bothers me that we have too many uniforms now in play. Uh, for a while, we had fairly generic, monochromatic uh, Father's Day, Mother's Day, 
uh, patriotic uniforms. We've gone away from that. We've added the caps now and let teams wear their own uniforms. But Paul and, and Jason, I'll, I'll ask you too, have you ever contemplated the idea of in 30 years when you look back at maybe a Mets no-hitter on a particular day that a fan is going to go, what were they wearing? I don't even recognize that uniform. Uh, you know, I was talking about the uh, the Mercury Mets and the futuristic uniforms. Uh, that was actually a concern for Oral Hershiser, who was with the Mets at that time. He was uh, he had 198 wins, 199 wins, and he was going to be going for his 200th win. And he knew where his turns in the rotation were coming up for the, his next two starts. And the second one, like you know, there was five days he was going to pitch and then five days later. So the 10 day, the 10th day was the date that the Mets were going to wear the Mercury Mets uh, uniforms. And he told himself he had to get the 200th win in that first turn in the rotation because he didn't want his family there and all the attention and like, you know, video highlights preserved in amber forever where, you know, he, that was, he was going to be wearing this silly costume essentially for a milestone victory in his career. And so, yeah, that was a concern to him. And I, yeah, I think sometimes uh, it it's, you do see uh, whether it's a no hitter or a, a pennant clinching victory or whatever it might be. And, and yeah, you're looking and saying, what was that? Uh, on the other hand, it's it's a marker, right? Like it's 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 a way to mark that moment in history that uh, it's not just you know, you know, like if somebody says, "Oh, this this was from so and so's no hitter," and you can say, "Well, no, you know, I I know for sure that's not a photo from his no hitter because they were wearing this other uniform that day." <laughs> It, I, my mind goes two places when you say that. Number one, I won't watch Andy Griffith show episodes that are in color. I just don't like it. I don't enjoy it. I don't think it's as good of a show. And it's probably a lot of the same writers and a lot of the same plots. But I just enjoy the nostalgia of the black and white version because that's what I grew up with. But then again, living in the college football world specifically that I live in at points in the offseason – I, and I've done some high school football for ESPN as well. And I know that a substantial recruiting tool is not only what jerseys you have, but how many you have. It's a symbol of status in some regard for a player to be in a jersey that looks awesome or looks wild or makes you look faster or whatever it might be. So I, I'm fascinated. And I was going to ask Paul this. Um, what? Like the difference in sports to me is stark, but what do you make of colleges using their uniforms and their look as recruiting tools and how sustainable is that? I, I actually question the conventional wisdom on that a little bit. And you say you've worked you know, in college sports and high school sports, so I, I don't mean to discount your experience there. Uh, and certainly we all know that 17-year-olds like shiny objects, right? <laughs> so they're attracted Look, to Look, I'm 37 what? and I like shiny objects. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, you look at some of the big programs. Like what oh, I would say over the last decade, could we agree that probably the top football program in the country has been Alabama? Yeah. And, and you know, they have essentially two uniforms and one helmet. Uh, and... Last I checked, they're not having a trouble. They're not having any trouble recruiting players. You're right. Uh, last You're right. I checked, Penn State, at least since the Sandusky era, has not had any trouble recruiting players, and they have like the most minimalist, boring you know, <laughs> uniform of any school. And so I, I think that the players are certainly uh, 
interested in those kinds of things and it's fun to be recruited and be, you know, if they, if you visit the campus and they give you some flashy Jersey or something like that, uh, I think players like that, but what little research or polling that's been done on that topic that I'm aware of showed that uniforms were at best sort of a tiebreaker somewhere like sixth or seventh on the list for what players consider when choosing a school or what recruits consider. Uh, and not surprisingly, the most important things were the coach, the program's history and so on. And I think for a lot of 17 year olds who like flashy objects, uh, a uniform system like Oregon's certainly is a nice bonus and makes you feel cool and look swaggy or all those terms that 17 year olds like to use. Uh, but I'm not, I, I really question how far that goes in terms of uh, their decision-making. Um, and you, know, you look at a school like Maryland, which was trying to basically be the Under Armour version of Oregon, Right, like Oregon came out with all the crazy uniforms because uh, Phil Knight went to Oregon and he gave them special treatment. And then it was the same thing with University of Maryland, where Kevin Plank, the CEO and founder of Under Armour, went and he gave them those crazy Maryland flag patterned uniforms. And and they've kept that up, but you don't hear much buzz about Maryland's uniforms because they're not a very good team. They don't win yeah. many games. And That's and right. Oregon, to their credit, right when they were doing all of this with the uniforms became a very good team. And, and so it was easy to correlate what was going on with their look uh, with their success on the field. Uh, and I, I think that gave the, the, the sort of impression that uniforms could really make a difference. But with, with a team like Maryland and a lot of these other teams, I, I think the lesson is that if, if you dress you know, crazy or like a clown and you win, you look like a winner. You dress like a clown and you lose, you just look like a clown. <laughs> and, and, I, 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 so I, I question, or at least I, I think we should, it's a little more complicated than just saying uniforms help recruit players, but that, is it, is it part of the, the ecosystem of college football uniforms? Yeah, I guess to a degree it is. Those are great points. I, I have a, um, I have a very specific vocational question that, that might actually help me selfishly if you'll indulge for 30 seconds of a preamble. I did a Washington football game years ago. In Seattle, they were playing Stanford, and Washington was wearing the black jerseys with the purple numbers. And we were doing the game from approximately Mount Rainier. <laughs> and even binoculars were a struggle to figure out who was who. Quite a few times in my football calling career, I've run into uniforms that just you can't see from the press box. So if you were giving guidance to an athletic department, and you said, you can do anything you want on a jersey, but here's what you need to do to make the numbers stand out to fans who are at the stadium and people who are hypothetically announcing the game, <laughs> hypothetically. What would you say to them? Because your answer here, I will carry with me in my suitcase to every game I go to from now and for always, so no pressure. Uh, you need contrast. I mean, it's not rocket science. You have to have contrasting colors. Uh, so if you have a dark colored uniform, you need light colored numbers and vice versa. You should never, ever have the same color uh, number or typography of any kind on the same color jersey. And that's what the NBA did for a while with what they called their big color. Uh, I think they used those for Christmas time or something like that, where it was basically 
like if you had a red jersey, you had red numbers and they were outlined in white. So it wasn't, you know, you could see some sense of, of the number, the numeral forms, but it's not enough. You need you need actual contrast. Uh, the Braves have done this, actually. The Atlanta Braves, they've had um, for a while, they had blue alternate jerseys with blue numbers outlined in white. That's not enough contrast. You need actual white numbers. Uh, so in the case of your, your Washington example, where if you have a black jersey with purple, that's basically, it's not quite dark on dark, but it's it's almost dark. It's like middling on dark. That's not enough contrast. So those purple numbers should have been outlined in yellow, I would say, something like that. Uh, and also this pertains more to football, specifically to football, uh, because I've had uh, some of your colleagues and also spotters yeah. <laughs> uh, from when I worked at ESPN have talked to me about this. You got to have those TV numbers. Uh, meaning the numbers on the sleeves or the shoulders, uh, which help identify the players. If they're not facing directly at you, you can see their numbers from the side. And they're called TV numbers because they help broadcasters and spotters uh, to do their job and identify who a player is. Uh, and they're mandatory, or they had they had been mandatory in the NFL. Now it appears that rule has been waived, uh, and an increasing number of NFL teams are going without TV numbers, but it's never been mandatory in the NCAA. And so there's a fair number of college teams that don't have TV numbers that I bet that drives you nuts. So so I will say it, it matters less to me than it does. And he's a big White Sox fan, so I'm going to mention him here. His name's Adam Doster. We've been friends from since high school at Homewood Flossmore. And he's my spotter for football for, for a number of years. He'll text me every once in a while, like once a year, and be like, Oh, I'm glad we're not doing this this game. These numbers are awful. <laughs> like spotters lose sleep over this stuff. So thank you, Paul. We need to get this into the stream of the NCAA. Not that not that they're not busy with like all of the conferences imploding, right. but this should be high on their list too. Right. And really, it's it. I think fans find you know more contrast, more visually pleasing as well. And it, you know, in college basketball, and and there at least you're not broadcasting the game from Mount Rainier, right? You're like courtside if you're, if you're <laughs> right. They have done things like black numbers on a black jersey, you know, just to be edgy or something like that. And I get that that I guess that's quote unquote creative in a certain way. It's but it I, I don't think anyone actually finds it visually pleasing. No, I had my first game this past basketball season was on Zoom. I was with Robbie Hummel and it was Michigan and Bowling Green and Bowling Green had brown on orange and all of their players are 6'6", 200 pounds. Mm -hmm. And I was like, OK, let's do you know what? We're just going to flip a coin on who's playing. Uh -huh. Well, those those that's a different situation because there is contrast there, but those colors vibrate. That's a, a situation of vibrating colors, right, where the edges don't look distinct to you. And yeah, it's, it's almost like not painful exactly, but it's just it, it, it doesn't sort of it's hard to focus on the edges of the, the characters and the numerals. Interesting. And, That's called vibrating. Yeah. Vibrating colors. Yeah. And so sometimes an outline color can help with that. And those, of course, are the colors of the Cleveland Browns as well. Uh, the brown and orange. They've managed they they managed to get away without vibrating colors. They, they usually do a pretty good job. Paul, we have, uh, and we could do this for five hours, and I do have a bunch of stuff I still want to get to, but we do want to get to your thoughts on the City Connect jerseys, in particular the Southside White Sox jerseys and uniforms, which uh, seem to be incredibly popular not only in Chicago but around the country. I see these jerseys everywhere we go on the road this year. Really? All the, the White Sox ones? Yep. 
Uh, I'm okay with them in general. Uh, you know, the White Sox have a history. If you go, I mean, the White Sox have a history, if you go back far enough, of wearing almost anything and everything, <laughs> as I was talking about before. But they do have a history of having worn something like this, like in the early 1900s. Uh, it was more of a dark navy, I think, but it was a, like a solid dark pinstriped uniform. Uh, I, I'm fine with the South Side uh, insignia. I'm not nuts about the cap. I don't think the cap works very well. Uh, the CHI to me doesn't, it doesn't read the way socks reads uh, and it doesn't read as well as Southside reads. So I'm not nuts about the cap, but otherwise I'm, I'm fine with it. Uh, I think the City Connect uniforms have been a mixed bag so far. Uh, my favorite one by far is the Marlins uh, because um, it tells the story of a, a Cuban team, uh, a Cuban minor league team and of course, Miami has a big uh, Cuban population. And so they're telling uh, not just a, a, a uniform story or a community story, but a baseball story. The, it's, it's not a, a pure throwback, but it, it evokes and includes elements from this old Savannah Sugar Kings team uniform. And so I really love that because it, it, it doesn't feel like just a lifestyle accessory or something designed to move merchandise. It's telling a baseball story. And so I, that's my favorite one by far. My least favorite is the Red Sox one because it just, it's not a necessarily an awful uniform, but it's an awful Red Sox uniform. Like there's just nothing in it that says Red Sox at all. Like you look at it and it, there's not like even a hint or a clue that this has anything to do with the Red Sox. The colors don't work, you know, it doesn't, it's not that the colors don't work with each other, but they don't work as Red Sox. It just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't feel right. Uh, but I, I, I think the Chicago came out okay. I think both the Cubs and the White Sox ones are, are okay, uh, if not ideal. I don't, I don't much love the, uh, the Giants one with the fog, which is a, an interesting concept, but I, I, I think it, it's better in concept than in execution. Uh, and I'm sort of dreading what the Dodgers one might be. I, I, I think there may be one that I left out. I don't remember. But uh, yeah, but there's, there's one left to come this season. I would say the most interesting thing about the City Connect program in general to me is that they're rolling it out in stages. Seven teams this year, a bunch more next year, and then the rest the third year. So over a three-year period, which is not the way these things have worked in most of the major sports or in Nike's uniform programs in recent years, or Adidas for that matter. Like I mentioned, the uh, the NHL's reverse retro. All 31 NHL teams got these reverse retro uh, uniforms. And that that's sort of a lot to swallow at once. They unveil them all in one shot. Uh, and same with NFL and Color Rush. Um, in the NBA, every team gets a new city edition every single season. So you've barely gotten used to the design and then it's gone. Poof, it's gone. And now there's a new one next year. Uh, and so your head ends up kind of spinning. And with the with MLB, not only are they doing just a few teams at a time, but they're spacing them out. The seven teams that they're doing this year, they, they've spaced out over the course of the season from April to August. So I, I applaud that. I think that's a much better way to do it. Um, whether the designs are good is sort of a separate question, but I do think the way they're they're kind of unveiling them and rolling it out is a much more welcome approach for at least from my my standpoint. Uh, the White Sox wear matte finish helmets, batting helmets, which I love. The Dodgers wear those. A lot of teams have added that. Do you like that look? I think it depends on the team. I think from for some teams it does have a really nice satiny look uh, that I like. I think. Uh, the, that trend in conjunction with another thing that the White Sox do, which is the raised logo 
on the batting helmet, the sort of 3D printed uh, or rubberized logo that extends out a little bit. That is arguably the biggest trend in Major League Baseball uniforms over the last few years. And it has nothing to do with merchandise. That's what's so interesting about it to me. Like people don't buy batting helmets, right? <laughs> that's not something they sell. And so this is something that's been done really just just for design purposes, just for aesthetic purposes. And generally, I think it, it looks pretty good for most teams. Uh, I think the Yankees are interesting because they do it only on the road. They have the uh, the matte helmet on the road, but they wear the glossies at home, um, which feels about right. Like the matte kind of works with the gray, like a little duller finish to go with the, the gray uh, and the shinier to go with the snazzier pinstripes. Like that all makes sense. Uh, so I think uh, the Rangers, their red... Uh, Matte finish helmet, I really like that one. That looks really good. Um, generally, I think the most of them look pretty good, but I don't know that. I'm not saying every team should do it, but I, in general, I think it looks pretty good. All right, can we do nameplates now? Yeah, yeah. So I'm really into this, and uh, I annoy my partner Darren Jackson all the time. Uh, vertical arching is something that actually a lot of teams back in the '70s and '80s did. And, uh, Paul, you could probably better define it uh, for people who don't know what it means. But it essentially allows uh, a jersey to have a name on the back with the letters closer together and less spread out. And there's something incredibly aesthetically pleasing about a long name that fits on the back of a jersey and they don't have to push the number down on the jersey to get the entire name on the back. Vertical arching, yes or no? Oh, totally yes. I'm a big, longtime proponent of vertical arching. And and when you just when you said incredibly aesthetically pleasing, I can't tell you how many times I have used that phrase in the course of my career. <laughs> it, uh, it comes up a lot. Uh, also, satisfying. Sometimes it's just satisfying. Uh, and so, vertical arching uh, is opposed to the more common radial arching. Radial arching, the letters in a name like Casper or Lucas or whatever it might be, are fanned out. Uh, on the jersey and they all sort of they're um if, if you look at any jersey that you own any for anyone listening to this that's what you probably have on the back is radial arching with vertical arching the letters are actually changed at like the design of the letter is slightly altered depending on its place in the in the name so that like when andres galarraga played for the braves who had vertical arching at, at that time uh there's three a's in galarraga right and so each A would have a slightly different shape depending upon where it appeared in his name and where it, where it appears in the arch of his name. The Braves were actually the last team to, in Major League Baseball to use vertical arching. And unfortunately, they did away with it. And yeah, there's, there's something really special about vertical arching. The Orioles used to have it. The Giants used to have it. Um, and it, it does look more professional. It just looks, it's snappier. It is more aesthetically pleasing. There's, there's no getting around it. Why, why, why do teams not do it? Or why would you go away from it? Because you have to custom cut each letter because if, if you, if so it's a cost rating, issue, it's cost and hassle. It's not really cost. Sure. It's, it's more just the effort and the hassle of it. Um, it, if you're just using radial arching and you have a bin full of letters, uh, and you're spelling out Galarraga, Every A is the same. Every L is the same. Or whatever. Every G in Colorado is two. I'm thinking of the letters that appear more than once. So you, you can just sort of fan them out, and they all appear exactly the same. And I should tell you, like, because I've had this debate with a lot of people. Some people prefer it that way. There are fans out there, and, and people who care about uniforms who like radial arching better. Uh, I definitely prefer the vertical arching. I like that it's that it's sort of custom. Uh, and I'm gonna. 
it'd be good to show uh, the people who are watching on video what vertical arching looks like. Give me a second and I can I can find an example of it. That would be great. Sure. Okay. That would be great. Yes. We'll um, talk amongst ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the Detroit Red Wings still use vertical arching. And again, um, when you have a long name like Glenn Denning, I'm trying to think of uh, Zetterberg, you know, some really long names. They look a lot better. Uh, the longer names look really, really sharp in vertical they arching. Do. And you mentioned the Red Wings. They're really the last professional team that, that still uses vertical arching and they don't use it during the preseason right? Uh, because it, because they have a lot more teams in yeah. camp and it's a hassle and you sort of have to earn the vertical arching. And every year, like clockwork in September, when the NHL preseason starts, I get emails from people who said the Red Wings changed the lettering on the back of the, Oh, they're, they're, Oh, they got rid of the vertical. Oh, it doesn't look the same. It's a different font. And I have to say like, happens every year. It's okay. When the regular season starts, the vertical arching will be there. You'll see. So here's an example. This is a, an old, old jersey from a factory team uh, in Wisconsin. It was a, an aluminum an aluminum goods factory. And, and you can see here that if you look at, say, the two U's, that they're angled differently because each letter on that word aluminum has been custom cut depending on its place in the jersey. And so that is vertical arching. And yeah, it is much more aesthetically pleasing. And you can see the A, the first letter, it, you know, it leans very heavily. And if there were an A elsewhere in that word, it would be cut differently and it would be shaped differently. And so that's vertical arching. And it just, it has, a, I totally agree with you, Len. It, it just looks so much snappier. Benetti, are you in on vertical arching or radial? So I like I like anything that is like handcrafted and individualized. So I... I <laughs> I'm encountering this for the first time, but yes, I would take vertical arching. My takeaway from that 10 minutes or so is that I want to live in Paul's house. He just has an <laughs> aluminum goods jersey in his closet at hand. Uh, well, it's one of, one of the few examples of, of vertical arching I knew that I could I could easily reach for. But yeah, I have a lot of old uh, vintage uniforms like that. That's an old heavy wool flannel. Uh, just imagine uh, on a hot summer day, somebody wearing that. It's just like crazy that, that that was the norm in baseball for so long so it's not you know the old ways weren't always better i think it's probably better for everybody that players wear these new lightweight fabrics nowadays uh but it's a shame that they're not doing it with uh, vertical arching but you know len you mentioned you said let's talk nameplates really there are no nameplates in major league baseball anymore because the letters are all directly sewn on the back of the jersey now the player's name uh and when sometimes uh, some teams used to have a separate strip of fabric uh, with the letters on it, and they'd sew that on, and that's called a nameplate. And I think it was two two years ago, I believe, uh, the Rays became the last team finally to get rid of uh, their nameplates. And I, I think that's a much cleaner look. I like it without the nameplates. Um, I have a few readers who've told me they like nameplates better. They think it looks more, I don't know, official or tough or something. Football, the NFL always uses nameplates. Uh, hockey, some many teams use nameplates. Basketball, for some reason, never. No nameplates ever on a basketball jersey. A couple I'm, of uh, quick notes here. I, I really want a throwback day where players, they, they wear wool. I think it would be really <laughs> – no, I'm serious. I think it would be really cool to have, like, a throwback night. Like, here's a, you know, 1955 matchup or whatever, the, the White Sox and Yankees, and have the players after the game say, yeah, can't, can't imagine how they would do that. That's number one. Number two, uh, and Jason, I'm curious if you know this – a lot of players with button-down jerseys have their 
fronts sewed and they essentially are pullovers. Did you know that? And you can tell by there is, I believe, a horizontal seam, usually about three or four buttons down. Uh, and, and they have the jerseys sewed together because what I'm told is the button downs alone, they move too much and there's chafing. And so it's literally sewed together. So a button down becomes a pullover. Did you know that, Jason? I had I had heard that uh, before, like in the minors, when I, you know, like somebody would be sewing on a letter because a player just got traded, and I had I had heard or seen that. It rings a bell. There's a handful of players, a growing number of players who do that. Like I would say, at least a dozen in Major League Baseball right now. Kike uh, Hernandez was uh, it, he does it. it. He was one of the first I was aware of doing it back when he was with the Dodgers uh, several years ago. And yeah, they uh, like you said, Len. Some players feel that the the regular button front jersey sort of moves around a little bit on them, and it's also just it's easier not to have to fuss with the buttons. And so they have the jersey sewn shut, except for like the top two or three sometimes, and it, and it essentially becomes a Henley pullover. And I thought it was really interesting that uh, at the All Star game, where they aside from the horrible designs of the jerseys at, at the All Star game, those were those were pullover jerseys. Uh, they had two buttons. Uh, and that was it. And it was they were pullovers, and people were saying, "Well, is that is that where the game is heading?" And it wouldn't surprise me to see a team in the next season or two come out either with a City Connect. I think it would start with an alternate jersey like a City Connect that was a pullover, or to start offering players the option, like if you if you want to wear the full button front, you can. Or if you want to have a pull, one of these two-button pullovers, you can. Because if, if players are basically hacking the design by sewing it shut, um, it's sort of uh, uh, it means the design isn't working for them, like functionally, physically. And you know they say form follows function, and so uh, I would expect Nike, especially, is the kind of company that likes to think of itself as very responsive to athletes' desires. And so if if athletes are basically sewing the jerseys shut, it would not surprise me to see that become an option. And I'd be okay with that, frankly. I, I don't think that's necessarily a problem. It would mean that the uniform is not truly uniform, right? Some people would have the full button fronts and some would have the pullovers. But I, I think if the basic graphics are the same, I think that would be okay. And our producer, Brian Gailey, tells us the uh, White Sox City Connect jerseys have Velcro. Uh, so kind of allowing... It's not sewed together, but does give them a little extra comfort, I guess, uh, around the sternum. Uh, all right. As we come full circle here, Paul, I think the best way to wrap up this conversation, and uh, I think we should do this more often, at least once a year, if you're, you're game to come back and we'll, we'll talk jerseys because there are a million great topics here. But the Dallas Cowboys, right? We can talk pulling uniforms together, owning colors, uh, aesthetically pleasing, all of those things. But you look at the Dallas Cowboys home uniforms, and when I watch it on my 65-inch you know, 4K television, I always say to myself, the blue of the, the, the numbers on the jersey, doesn't that, that, that does not match the blue on the helmet. And the silver on the helmet does not match the pants. And it's this mishmash of color palettes and things, but it's one of the most iconic looks in sports history, and as long as Jerry Jones is alive, they're never going to change it. So that's kind of the point, is that we have rules that we tend to apply, but in some cases, stuff that makes no sense just works. Yeah, uh, you know, the Cowboys, as you say, they have the inconsistent uh, blues and the inconsistent silvers. Uh, I, I'm okay with it. it it's it's kind of, it, it's 
from a period when there wasn't as much standardization and branding oversight, obviously. And, and that's, that's kind of charming in a way that, that that kind of mistake could, could sort of filter through the system and become entrenched to the point where now, if you did change it, a bunch of people would freak out. Right. <laughs> and it's not just the Cowboys, uh, you know, your favorite uniform, the Yankees. If you look closely, you'll see that the, the NY on the Yankees Jersey chest is not the same as the NY on their cap. It is a completely different NY. Um, I mean, they're similar, but they're, it's, and if you overlay them, they're, it's, they're not the same. Uh, until a couple of years ago, the Detroit Tigers had a completely different D on their jersey and their cap until they decided to standardize it. Uh, and I, I think those sorts of, you know, whether it was because they were different suppliers back in the day or somebody sent the wrong logo sheet to the printer or whatever it might be, it's kind of fun that those things can happen. And uh, I, I, I like that more than the kind of, you know, just imposing that, you know, everything must be exactly so, even though I often say that everything should be exactly so. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're right. We imply rules, I think, on newer teams and teams that are still trying to figure out, whereas the teams that have been around for 50 years, for 100 years, for 150 years, we tend to give them a break because, well, it's been that way for that long, so somebody must like it. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I, for one, I, I hope the Cowboys never change that. I, can't, I, I like that that's part of their DNA and like it's this little quirk uh, in a sports world that could probably use more quirks. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Paul Lucas uh, from UniWatch. Uh, your Twitter handle. Give us your Twitter it's handle. At, at UniWatch. U-N-I-W-A-T-C-H. Great. Thank you so much. And I look forward to you... Um, Quoting Benetti next time he talks about vertical arching on his broadcast. <laughs> uh, thanks so much, guys. Really, really enjoyed this. And as you can tell, I can I can go on about this stuff for a long time. So I uh, hope I didn't ramble too much. But thanks for, for I, I love this stuff. So thank you. I'm with Len. We need to do this yearly on this podcast because I have a list of stuff still to get to. And you're just you are the best in the business at it. Uh, your your stuff is tremendous. So I hope people go take a look at it if they've never seen it. Thanks so much, guys. We really appreciate it. And it's a date for next week. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.